Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to turn in God's word as we continue to worship him. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. While you're turning there, I want to welcome all of our guests who are with us this morning. It's a joy to have you here in our worship gathering. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. I'm going to read a portion of it, and then we'll fast forward and read uh, the last portion of it together. So chapter 6, verse 8, if you'd follow along, I'll read it to you. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the freedmen's synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Are these things true, the high priest asked? Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen. And then he speaks in chapter 7, and this is the longest recorded speech in the entire book of Acts. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to come back later on and dip into certain parts of it. But let's just skip to the end and see how they responded once the sermon was done. Skip to chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's quoting his savior, Jesus. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice and said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. So it's the story of the first Christian martyr. So much of this scene, though, is the opposite of what appears outwardly. What appears on the surface is one thing, but what's happening is something far deeper. So, for example, Stephen is the one who's on trial, but in a way, if you listen to what Stephen says, and we'll dip into it along the way, it sounds like he's the prosecutor. It doesn't sound like he's in the dock. It doesn't sound like he's the defendant. It sounds like he's the one prosecuting a case. Another example of outward versus inward is the temple. The glorious temple of Solomon looms in the backdrop in all of its splendor, and yet at a deeper level, God has left the building. And in our text, 
In chapter six, we hear these people, they, they amass accusations and allegations against Stephen at the end of chapter six, and at the end of chapter seven, he becomes the first martyr. So then the question is, what did he say in between to get himself accused of something? He has all the time in the world to say something, and then he gets himself killed. What did he say in between? And the answer is he took them on a tour. He took them on a tour of Old Testament history and it ended up being a really bumpy ride. It ended up being an extremely uncomfortable set of facts that faced the people. So he takes them through this tour of history in verse two through 16 of chapter seven. He talks about Abraham and the patriarchs. So he's 2000 BC at that point in the tour stop. And then verse 17 through 45, he talks about Moses and the giving of the law. So we've moved, we've fast forward another 500 years, about 1600 or 1500 BC. And then he takes one more stop in the tour in verse 45 to 50. And he talks about the period of the monarchs, the period of the great kings, King David and King Solomon and the building of the temple. And all along the way at each one of these tour stops, he's pointing to uncomfortable and unflattering facts about their history, and it leads his audience to close their ears and kill the messenger. So this passage, I think it's fascinating at multiple levels, but I'm titling the sermon, Religion Kills. In his excellent book, Defiant Grace, author Dane Ortland writes, the deepest distinction among human beings is not between the bad and the good, but between those who know they are bad and those who do not. Yet strangely, it is not the blatantly wicked who have the greatest difficulty seeing this, but the carefully obedient. And so what is Stephen going to address? He's gonna address basically three themes, and they're the themes that were raised when he was accused in chapter six. So he says, let's first, let's talk about holy places. Holy places. And you see, they're the ones who bring this up, and now he's responding. They bring it up in chapter 6, verse 13. Look down in your passage, and they say, this man, so here's one of the accusations, this man never stops speaking against this holy place. He's talking about the temple. They're talking about the temple, the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Now, in, in fairness to Stephen's accusers, it probably felt like this new Christian movement is trying to hijack historic Judaism because they have just enough claims to have some overlap with where our faith has been for a couple of thousand years. They profess to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They profess, they claim that the Old Testament is their founding document. So they, seem, they claim to love the Old Testament that we love. And yet... These Christians, their teaching, while claiming they love the Old Testament, they undermine some of the favorite things that God's people have loved, vital elements of the Jewish faith, namely the law, the land, and the temple. They speak in ways that relativize what is absolutely central in so many places, it seems to us, in the Old Testament. So to respond to these charges that, that Stephen and the apostles who are preaching that they're anti-temple and the charges that they're anti-Moses, he takes them back through the Old Testament to show that, first of all, God's presence was never restricted to the temple. God's presence was never restricted to the temple. Stephen says, you talk as if the temple's the only place that God is allowed to show up. As if God's glory is boxed in 
to that temple and it's the only place you can ever find him in the world and what does Stephen say in in chapter 7 verse 2 the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia so right out of the gate Stephen is saying let's just go back and take a pretty classic case let's take the patriarch of the faith himself let's go back to the very first moment in Genesis chapter 12 when the most high God introduces himself to the patriarch of the faith Abraham And he says, where did that happen? Let's just do our history. Where did God show up in the life of Abraham, the patriarch? And the answer is in Mesopotamia. It wasn't here in the holy city. It was 800 miles outside the holy city, way down in the east, actually in Babylon. (laughs) Ur of the Chaldees is where God first showed up. Stephen then takes another tour stop in Old Testament history in verse 33. So God showed up in some surprising places early on in Genesis chapter 12. But then when you fast forward to the time of Moses, God shows up in Moses and Moses isn't standing in the holy city when God says from the burning bush, take off your shoes because the place, the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. And it's as though Stephen is asking the question, was he in the temple? No. Was he in Jerusalem? Again, no. God shows up wherever God wants to show up. It's like Stephen is saying, when we say God's glory, when we're preaching and we're talking about the land and the temple and so forth, and when we say that God's glory is not limited to this city and to this place, the temple, we're not hating the Old Testament. We're quoting it. So if you look down in your text in your Bible, you might see that there's a bunch of words that are in bold print. And the reason they're in bold print is because those are moments where Stephen is quoting the Old Testament. He's saying, I'm not making this stuff up. Go turn with me in your Old Testament scriptures to this place and this place and this place so you can see what I'm saying has always been true. He says, let's talk about the temple. So look down in verse 47, chapter seven, verse 47. So now he moves to the time of the monarchs, the time of Solomon. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. That is the house, the temple of Solomon. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. This is in bold print because he's quoting Isaiah chapter 66. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, and what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? Here's the problem. They turned the temple into an idol. They turned the temple into an idol. Idolatry was a a big issue in Old Testament history and God had to get in his people's grill on a regular basis through the prophets and he would say, "Why, why are you worshiping those things that you made with your hands? And here, that very same word is used in in verse 48, made with hands. It's actually one word in the original language. And every time that word is used in the Old Testament, it's referring to idolatry for worshiping what their hands have made. But in this case, Stephen is really meddling here because he's saying, in this case, the thing that your hands have made and that you are worshiping is the temple of Solomon, you've turned the temple of God into an idol. You think about this for for us, here's the principle. It's possible to turn something God has ordained into a substitute for God. 
Say that again. It's possible to turn something God has ordained into a God substitute. To read the Old Testament story is to realize God always remains sovereign in where he shows up. We don't have him on a leash. He can go where he pleases. If he wants to withdraw his presence from a holy site, he can do it whenever he wants to. And he does at times. Ichabod is written. The glory has departed. When God sovereignly wants to, he can sovereignly withdraw. And he also, on the other hand, can show up wherever he wants. He can reveal his glory in God-forsaken Babylon. He can reveal his glory in way out here in Egypt. He can show signs and wonders in the heavens that his glory is on display don't put him in your box. He goes where he wants to. When my uh, dad and mom planted a church in New Orleans before I was born, uh, the only location that they could afford, and that was also available, so these two things had to come together, availability and affordability. And the only place that was available and affordable for their church to gather was a, was a bar room. It served as a bar room all week long, but the bar was closed on Sunday, and my mom would tell us later on, she said, you know, growing up, as your dad and I did in the Pentecostal holiness movement, where both of our parents didn't eat deviled eggs because devils. I mean, it just makes sense, right? You don't touch anything. You can eat angel food cake. You don't eat anything that has devil in it at all. Stay away from that stuff, right? So she, she, my mom would say, your dad and I both really struggled to believe a bar room could be repurposed for gathered worship. But it was the only place that we could afford. And she said, and then she started naming names of all these people who I grew up in church with who came to faith right there in the most surprising of all places in a repurposed bar where the bottles were pushed to the edges of the room and your feet stuck to the floor every time you picked up your feet to walk across the floor. God showed up in some of the most surprising places. And in the book of John, John's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus talks to a woman in Samaria. And she says, so where's the place? If you really want to meet with God, what's the optimal place? What's the best Wi-Fi connection? Of the mountains that we have here, holy mountains, which one has the best Wi-Fi connection with heaven? Because my people have been saying it's Mount Gerizim. And your people have been saying it's Mount Zion. And Jesus says, the answer is it's been Mount Zion. But he said, the other answer is the day is coming and now is when God will find his people worshiping him in spirit and in truth, whatever mountain they happen to be on, wherever their feet happen to be standing, God will find them when they're worshiping him in spirit and in truth. In other words, that's Jesus saying, mountain, schmountain, it's not gonna matter anymore. Jesus dies on the cross and an amazing phenomenon takes place. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain signaled everybody else has to be out there and God is inside here. Enter at your own risk and only one person can come in and only one time a year, this curtain just announced there's a, there's a distinction. You can't come in here. And the curtain was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died and that was God's way of saying, a new day has arrived. You're not gonna need this place anymore. You're not gonna need the curtain. You're not gonna need the priests. Everything's changing now, and the writer of Hebrews would say, God's people enter into the holy places by a new and living way through the curtain that is his flesh. It's a stunning, 
statement to make in the first century, meaning the death of Jesus provides every believer with the gift of confident and constant access to the presence of God. It's a new day. It's a new covenant. Religion had said, you need this temple if you want to get close to God. And Jesus said, not anymore you don't. Not now. Holy places, second, holy laws. Stephen says, let's talk about the holy laws. He's accused, chapter six, verse 11, you see, we heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So he's dissing Moses, and in dissing Moses, he's dissing Mount Sinai. He's dissing that massive event, the, the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments. So you can't pick something bigger to to cause problems than to suggest that the Mosaic law is obsolete. So Stephen says, okay, let's talk about the Mosaic law. Matter of fact, take a trip with me back to Mount Sinai and let's talk about what happened when the law was given at Mount Sinai. You know the story and he relates the story. If you look down in your chapter, uh, in chapter seven, verse 38, he, that is Moses, received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him, there's Moses, being pushed aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. This is Stephen saying, you speak as if the law has always been our favorite thing. When we both know, on day one, when Moses came down with a slab from the mountain and the fingerprint of God on that carved stone, our ancestors were busy worshiping their earrings that had been melted down and then fashioned into a golden calf. They plundered the jewelry from Egypt on their way out and then they melted it down and formed it into a golden calf. That was opening day. That was when the law came down and Moses came down. What's Stephen driving at? They boasted in having the law, but they didn't keep the law. Again, Stephen is meddling throughout this whole thing. He's saying to his audience, you project that you love God's law, but in reality, you reject it. You're projecting one thing, but your actual practice is different. And he said, now you got this to an art form because you've been practicing for about 1,500 years. Projecting one thing and doing another. You, You listen to Stephen's message and It's like, this is a guy, if I stopped and read all of chapter seven, which we didn't, but if I stopped and read all of chapter seven, it would have taken about five minutes. So this guy's got five minutes to live. He's got five minutes to get himself off the hook from these accusations. And he spends his whole five minutes putting them on the hook. He's not even trying to get off the hook. He's putting his audience on the hook. Why? Because he's an angry prophet who hates the people he's looking at? No. If he hated the people he was looking at, then why even when they start throwing stones is he saying, Lord, please don't hold this against them. He's a weeping prophet and he knows the truth and he wants them to grasp this one thing. He says, everything in our Old Testament was pointing forward to the arrival of the long promised Messiah and now he's here and you're blind 
Now he's here and you're holding on to the husk of the old covenant. The ship's going down. Temple is obsolete. Sacrifices aren't going to be happening anymore because Jesus, the Messiah, the God-man, arrived. Life is with him. We move forward with him or we die. Here's something we see all over the Old Testament. God's aim was purity of heart, not purity by ritual. Also true, in every, true on every page of the Old Testament. You, you think about the moment where King David epically sinned, egregiously sinned against God, sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against Bathsheba's husband. And God convicted David of his sin. God opened David's eyes to see how egregious and terrible it was what David did. And if you drop into Psalm 51, you get to eavesdrop on David and what you hear him doing is he's screaming. And what he's screaming is, God, I know I don't deserve this, but would you please give me mercy? If you gave me justice, no one could blame you for that. But I'm asking for mercy. Please have mercy on me. And that's when David in Psalm 51, he comes to this realization that is absolutely stunning. In Psalm 51 verse 16, David says, you don't want a sacrifice, <laughs> or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O oh God. Understand this morning, every day this week, that'll still be true. Every day this week, the sacrifice that pleases God is a heart that confesses sin rather than hiding it. A heart that runs to him. The reality is, friends, everybody here, we're all in the same boat. We've sinned, and we don't deserve mercy. If we're gonna talk about things we deserve, the only thing we actually deserve is judgment. We deserve that from a holy God. Praise God, the solution to what we've done is not try harder. The solution is God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world and Jesus stepped into the shoes of wayward Israel and took the story in a completely new direction. He fulfilled the law. He was faithful to the covenant. He obeyed the Father at every turn and then he goes to the cross and hangs in the place of sinners. He died our death and then he rises to new life and he says everybody who repents and believes gets new life. The, the new creation is breaking into the present age by the Holy Spirit so that if anyone is in Christ from that point on, he is a new creation in other words, what we see when we come into the New Testament and we see the impact and effect of the person and work of Jesus Christ is this. If you want to be holy from now on, you don't need holy laws. What you need is Jesus and his Holy Spirit. That's what makes us holy. Here on out, that's the only way to holiness. Stephen says, we've talked about holy places and holy laws. Let's wrap this up. Let's talk about holy servants. Holy servants. So in verses nine through 37, Stephen reminds them how God always sent agents, covenant agents, covenant mediators, covenant messengers, but he says, Stephen's point is, the servants God sent were routinely rejected. And then he shows them, case in point, let's talk about Joseph. 
God appointed, you know, the time of the patriarchs, book of Genesis, so we're all the way back to the first book of the Bible, and he says, let's talk about Joseph. God appointed Joseph, the one with the fancy coat, God appointed Joseph as the one who would save the family of Abraham from a coming famine. We didn't know about the famine, God knew about the famine, and God was raising up Joseph to save the family of Abraham from this coming famine. But, Stephen says in verse nine, what did his brothers do? His brothers sold him into Egypt. That's how the story went down. He said, not only was God sending Joseph to provide salvation for the people and the people rejected and opposed him, same thing happened when Moses got here. He said, you remember when Moses first showed up? He says in verse 23, look down at verse 23. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, Moses came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. Moses assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. In other words, Moses saw that moment as a preview of what's going to happen for the whole nation. God is going to put down your oppressors and he's going to lead you out into freedom, but the people didn't get it. Verse 26, the next day Moses showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating one another? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, who appointed you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. And then you see down in verse 37, and Stephen quotes Moses and said, Moses knew he wasn't the last or the greatest prophet. Moses said, God will send you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Moses was predicting the day when God's last word, the incarnate word, the word made flesh, Jesus would come and he would fulfill the law of Moses. He would speak authoritatively to God's people. Here's the point Stephen was driving at. Claiming to honor Moses, you reject the one to whom Moses pointed. So who's dishonoring Moses more, you or me? That's his point. One of the major themes, again, in Stephen's message is that God's Old Testament people continually rejected the ones God sent to save them. And in that way, the Old Testament's a kind of two-step dance. It's a two-step rhythm. God sends a messenger, they oppose the messenger. And Stephen says, blinded by religion, you're about to do it again. Look at verse 51 you stiff-necked people. <laughs> These are fighting words. With uncircumcised hearts and ears. Outwardly, you've been circumcised. Inwardly, there's a problem. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Like fathers, like sons, is what Stephen's saying. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? I'll wait. They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. Now he's referring to Jesus the Messiah, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. It's as though as Stephen brings this in for a landing, he's saying, you don't see the irony of what's happening here? So you accuse me of relativizing and undermining the law of Moses Let's remember what the law of Moses said. You shall not bear false witness. Why'd you conscript false witnesses 
to make accusations against me that aren't true. And yet you claim you love the law. You claim you love the law of Moses, which says thou shalt not kill, and yet I see you reaching for your stones. You're doing it again, what you've always done. You're doing it again. But here's the other pattern that you see in the Old Testament. It's not just God sent messengers and his people opposed and rejected those messengers. It's God sent messengers, the people opposed the messengers, God vindicated the messengers. Because they opposed Joseph and Joseph still went to the throne and Joseph still saved them from the famine. They opposed Moses and Moses still led them out of the slavery in Egypt and led them through the Red Sea. God vindicated his messengers and at this point, what you see here, what Stephen is saying in essence is just like Joseph and Moses, Moses of old, your blind rejection of God's purposes won't stop Jesus from reigning. And at this point, the reigning Jesus opens heaven for Stephen. And Stephen looks up and sees Jesus and he says, look, Stephen shouts, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And that's the final stroke. That's where religion kills. Because notice what they do. It says they yelled, they plugged their ears and rushed at Stephen to drag him out of town and to stone him to death. And what's the goal? The goal behind what they're doing in that moment is by this afternoon, the Jesus movement will be over. And in the irony of God, Luke says, as they drag him out of the city to stone him, they drop their coats at the feet of a young zealot named Saul. <laughs> Saul of Tarsus, who will later become Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles, and he'll become the Apostle Paul because, check him out, in about a chapter from now, the risen Jesus will pay a visit to Saul of Tarsus. And then Saul of Tarsus will start preaching the gospel of the resurrected King, Jesus, the son of David. And he'll preach it with equal boldness to what Stephen's doing here, and he'll preach it with history-altering impact. Friend, remember, the gospel we proclaim is unstoppable because the Jesus who is at its center is invincible. It's an unstoppable gospel because Jesus is an unstoppable king. The sobering thing is religion still kills. It didn't just do that in the first century. It does it here. It does it now. So let's think before we go about how religion still kills. Number one, it kills when we compare ourselves favorably against others, forgetting how much we need mercy. The biggest conflicts that Jesus has in the Gospels are not with the blatantly wicked. It's with those who believe themselves to be morally superior. They're spiritually entitled. They say, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, I could raise up children for Abraham from these rocks. God always has options and he talks, he confronts their spiritual entitlement. They thought they had God on retainer. Jesus said, that's not the way it is. Robert Murray McShane, the famous Scottish preacher, said this, the seeds of all sins are in my heart and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. That's how religion kills. Second, 
Religion kills when we substitute outward forms for inward change. So we have to constantly, as followers of Jesus, we have to constantly look away from externals to Jesus himself for our standing before God. Otherwise, when we get our eyes off of Jesus and we start looking at our own merits or our own works or our own practices, over time, little by little, we start buying the lie that it's my dedication that brought me near to God. It's my service to him that makes my worship acceptable before him. I love these words from Josh Moody in his book, No Other Gospel. He writes, I can take the best thing from God and in my human pride make it something that offends God. I can take a marriage and feel justified because I have a good marriage. I can take a church and feel justified because I'm a member of a church. Those in themselves are good things, but I am using them in a way that in the most important and essential sense is no different from the pagan religion that seeks to please the gods by various magic, moral, or ritual activities. That's how religion kills. Third, religion kills when we look to something other than Christ alone. The Apostle Paul would famously say, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's our way in and there are no other ways in except Jesus. Understand this, Christian, anything you require in order to feel you have worshiped God rightly apart from the grace of God, the work of Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit is an idol. There's only one way in, and it's Jesus. Top to bottom, it's Jesus. I began by quoting from Dane Ortland's excellent book, and I want to finish by quoting some of the intro to that book. He writes, It's time to enjoy grace anew. Not the decaffeinated grace that pats us on the hand, ignores our deepest rebellions and doesn't change us, but the high octane grace that takes our conscience by the scruff of the neck and breathes new life into us with a pardon so scandalous that we cannot help but be changed. Jesus is real, grace is defiant, life is short, risk is good. For many of us, the time has come to abandon once and for all our play it safe, toe dabbling Christianity and dive in. Religion can't bring us to God after all. You want to draw near to God? You don't need temples. You don't need priests. You don't need sacrifices. You don't need perfect theology. You don't need great quiet times. You don't need to feel worthy. You don't need me. You don't need this. What you need is Christ. And you can have him by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Keep believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and you have constant, confident access to his presence.